Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Josh. And uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we've got a wonderful episode of the movies that made me uh, coming right up for you. It's a conversation with the filmmaker Anna Biller, writer, director of The Love Witch, which is a fantastic film. Uh, highly recommend. Um, so you're going to notice that even by uh, our pandemic standards, the sound quality on this one's a little glitchy. This was actually the first post-quarantine episode we recorded. We were still kind of finding our way. So it's a little tinnier uh, than the ones that have come since then. We apologize in advance. We really appreciate you bearing with us. But this was such a good conversation and it was such a great guest. We wanted to get it to you. So uh, thank you for continuing to support the show. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, and now enjoy the movies that made me. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Welcome to the apocalypse. Uh, as long as we can keep the podcast going. Yeah, that's all that counts. That's really all that counts. And then we're going to schedule saying to Joe, and we'll we'll schedule these uh, to come out every week, even if uh, you know. So after after even we're if all there's dead, no one left to hear them. That's right. So uh, <laughs> anyway, um, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, very very excited to have you. Um, uh, we we um, I guess we should we should announce our guest, right, Joe? I think that would be a good idea. Uh, that, that would be a good idea. Uh, our guest this week is Anna Biller, who is the uh, writer and director of uh, a, a movie I'm very, very fond of, The Love Witch. This is our first post-Captain Trips episode of the movies that made me. So there's still a few glitches here. But anyway, uh, Anna is the writer and director of a wonderful movie called The Love Witch, um, which I, I was struggling beforehand. We're very kind of casual here, and we don't. As, as you know, coming in, we don't interview you specifically about your work, but I do like to, you know, we do like to acknowledge the fact that you've done work. I don't know how best to describe it. It's a, it's a lovely, um, is it an homage? Would you call it Anna? Is it a, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe the love witch to, to an audience, but um, it's, you've done an amazing job of capturing the look and the vibe of a certain type of, uh, late '60s um, movie, especially the my God, the color palette in your film is is delirious. I love it. It's a wonderful pastiche of a whole bunch of different things. Um, I, I you got to help me out here, and I'm doing a terrible job of of selling your movie. Well, I mean, you know, um, it's it's different for everyone who watches it what they get out of it. But good point. Um, for me, I was just making a movie, and I was making a movie, and I, I made it look how I like movies to look. And um, with the kind of colors I like and the kind of writing I like <laughs> and the kind of acting I like. And it happens that I've watched a lot of classic movies, a lot of older movies. 
And uh, I think the reason it, it came out looking so 60s to people is because 60s is like the oldest movies people watch. <laughs> yeah, these, <laughs> that's optimistic. Anyway. That's optimistic today, I think. But yes. <laughs> I mean, so, but it also looks like, well, you know, older movies, but also it's in color. It's in color. So that kind of, it could, okay, so 50s and 60s would be color, but also it's low budget. And I think that um, low budget movies that people have seen are mainly from the 60s because they weren't making B pictures in the 50s um, in color. Right. So I think the first B, the first low budget movies that we've seen were in the 60s. That were in color. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so I think that that's like the earliest reference people have for low budget color movies. And that's why everyone says it looks like the 60s, right? Right. But it's also kind of like some really early red and green Technicolor movies. Because yes. they made some really weird, low budget, especially shorts and weird yeah. things like that. It's sort of like that, too, I think, a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it's it's a, it's a lovely film, and it is it is very much its own thing. And um, anyone who hasn't seen it should should uh, rush out and check it out. You probably have time now to check it out. So, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. but it's great. Yeah. So it's it's the kind of movie that um, you are making a movie making a movie that reminded you of uh, the kind of movies that made you right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, um, I originally had said it in the past, and then I decided, no, I want this to be said in the present. So I did my darndest to set it in the present, but I don't think I 100% succeeded in that. Oh, that's funny. So I, I, I don't want to tell a guest that they failed at a thing. I, I, it never it never <laughs> occurred to me that it was in the present, although it, it never occurred to me that it was any particular time either. Well, it's got, it's got new cars. It has computers. Uh, it's got a cell phone. That's true. That's and true. So I, yeah. It's just somehow the. It mentions DNA testing. You know, there's certain things in it. Um, yeah. So. A good point. It's just sort of the feel of the thing is so overwhelming. You almost yeah. don't notice those things. Uh, yeah. And I just think, uh, I think it's timeless. I was hoping to make it more timeless. That, yes. That's a great way of putting it. That is a great way of putting it. Um, but yeah. So you, you came here. Well, you didn't come here. We're, we're all coming. We're all coming to each other from our uh from our bunkers um but uh you're you're here to talk about you had an interesting idea for the the movies you want to talk about do you want to uh, and and i have not told joe what we're discussing at all he, he never tells me joe likes to come in just absolutely <laughs> it's always right. a surprise yes okay so i thought i would i would talk about um some of the movies that i really love are women's pictures from the classic age of movies Great. Yeah. that would be movies from the early 30s through the late 50s mainly, or the early 60s, um, where they had female protagonists and stories that were about yeah. women. And they were usually centered around a star and a kind of, um, and they, they just, they, there's a certain, it's an interest, it's interesting is there's a new type of scholarship around women's pictures that I've seen it's not very much yet, but but a lot of women that I kind of follow on Twitter, they follow me, are kind of obsessed with these movies because they have incredible female characters. So we're women that are looking for um, movies to watch that are about our own experiences as women. Um, can watch this, these you know dozens or hundreds of fantastic films that were made in the classic age of movies. 
And I'm not going to say just Hollywood because it was around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the best ones are made in Hollywood. I mean, partly because they have the star system. And so some of the actresses that are my favorite actresses would be like um, Berlina Dietrich and Mae West uh, from the 30s or uh, Jennifer Jones or Joan Crawford, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or Joan Bennett or, uh, you know, just, you know, Jean Tierney from the 40s. Um, obviously Barbara Stanwyck, um, you know, just a lot of these actresses. And um, they made these like fantastic movies around stories that were just so varied in terms of women's experiences. And, uh, you know, anything from being, you know, uh, a, a woman who was prostituting herself to, a, to, to you know, mothers or saints, or just every type of uh, female experience. And um, there were just so many good writers in those days that were writing screenplays. And they were writing them for every type of human experience. You know, men's experiences, women's experience, just every type of human experience. And that would include women because women were people. And <laughs> and there's not so much of that anymore. That, that's, that's the thing. I was going to sit on that um, till later. Um, but I definitely want to discuss with you because it's something that's always... I, I, I might tell a story later on about sort of how I stumbled across this revelation very late, but yeah, it does seem like um, at least, you know, the, the, that movies about women in that era somehow uh, had a sort of richer, more nuanced and more uh, complicated um, palette than, than a lot of movies today on the same. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It was so full of and, nuance. It was like a woman, was, you know, a, a, just a, such an incredible range of things, just like how men are in movies. Um, and it, it's it, it's like, I think a lot of people don't don't realize it or haven't seen a lot of these movies. But these would be some of the largest, you know, the biggest budget, most popular movies, Academy yeah. Award winners, like All About Eve or Mildred Pierce or, or The Women, you know, some of these films that were just huge yeah. films, you know, that people would and all sorts of awards for them. So they weren't kind of relegated into this kind of ghetto of, uh, you know, chick flick or something like that. I know they're very much, um, you know, big films. And centered around also usually very subtle performances by actresses. So that's one reason why Joan Crawford has become Mm. one of my favorite actresses. And it was, it's actually over time that I started to realize how great she was. It was kind of like really looking at her work, especially some of her work in mm-hmm. the 40s and 50s, when she got more and more subtle, you know, as she as she learned more and she became extremely, extremely um, good at um, at this thing. And you know, and then people were writing scripts specifically for these actresses and with their skipping. So it's just um, so these are these are some of my favorite movies. Yeah, let's let's start walking through them. What do you? <laughs> um, well, you know, like a great, you know, some of the great movies were made in the pre-code era. Oh, God, yes. And so one of, one of my favorite movies from that era is Babyface. Oh, yeah. And so you know that one. Uh, the Sainted Barbara. Yes, there's a, there, are, there are two extant versions of that picture. There's the, uh, oh, that's the, right, yeah. the one that was censored at the time. Uh, and then there was the recent reconstruction um, where uh, so many of these pre-code films were were further cut when they were reissued, because once the Hayes Code came in, they re-examined every early '30s movie that was co- coming out, and they had to 
uh, be made to satisfy the uh, current Legion of Decency crowd. And so uh, a, a number of these pictures have never been restored, but Babyface is one of them that has had a lot of its nuance re re restored. Yeah, so probably the one that we've seen that's been in theaters in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years is a restored one, I would imagine, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, that's great. Yeah, so, so Barbara Stanley goes through man after man and climbs her way to the top using the... Oh, right, that's the one where they literally, it goes up the building, right? Yeah. They she do the shot every the time she gets a, she advances. See the windows open and lights come on. Yes, yes. God, I and the things, And they keep playing St. Louis Woman. You know, St. Louis Woman is a song, you notice a lot of pre-code movies play that song when they're trying to indicate that a woman's gone bad. <laughs> you know, St. Louis Woman with her diamond ring, she got that man wrapped around her apron strings, you know, like the song. Um, <laughs> So it's about a bad woman, you know, or a woman who's gone bad or who makes men go. And so every time, you know, you have this shot, like climbing up the building, they start playing St. Louis Woman, which is really fun. That's and, hilarious. you know, you just the gowns in that movie. I can't remember who did them. I think it was maybe Ori Kelly. It was Ori Kelly, I think, or it might have been Adrian. But she's got these incredible gowns. And so she starts off with this really bad taste. Like she's this woman who has very little money and she's got terrible taste and just to go shop, maybe the cheapest thing at the department store. She's got awful hair. And then she starts, her hairstyles gets kind of better. But her taste gets better. Right. She's more and more wealthy and she gets more and more elegant. And then finally she's just um, sort of dripping the jewels and wearing the, you know, the best gowns. And it's so much fun. It's such a fantasy in a way. She gets harder and harder, but she still maintains her heart, right. you know, and so. And there's a kind of, I mean, I feel like she's not judged in the way that she would be judged in a movie even 10 years later. Or even three. Or even three, three. yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and, and isn't, that the, isn't that the film where she has uh, a black friend who is starts out sort of as a pseudo-domestic type character, but then as yeah. the movie goes on, it's presented as a co-equal? Yeah. Yeah, her, well, her friend. And, you know, Mae West had a little bit of that in her movies as well. You know, another movie that re was really great for me is She mm. Done Wrong. And um, that's Mae West. And he's, I think it's Cary Grant's first major role. I think there's like an anecdote where um, Mae West was trying to cast someone to play opposite her in this movie. She saw Cary Grant walking across the lot and she said, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> she, said, she said, if he can act higher, if he can act higher, or if he can talk higher. <laughs> like that. So, but anyway, that's a fantastic yeah. movie. And again, she just calls the shots, you know, everything she wants. And, you know, she takes what she needs. And she, you know, she, she's, she's very, she's very sexy. And she's very witty. And she's also very maternal which is interesting. And so it's like her sexuality is not weak. It's very strong and it's also right. very unhurried. You know, it's very calm and it's very warm and it's very inviting. And it's almost like she's teaching men how to be comfortable with their sexuality. You know, you know, she's, 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 uh, she's luring them, but in a very like kind of a, a almost a maternal way, you know? So, you know, uh, you know, come up and see me sometime, you know, if you're not doing anything, come up, you know, and all her little, you know, she wrote her all around, all the stuff that she took from Broadway, 
you know, stuff like um, when women go bad, men go right after them, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff. Or they're like two kinds of men, domestic and foreign. <laughs> it's just all these little bits. Uh, so I love Mae West. Yeah. And again, you know, just gowns and, you know, just the, the, the I guess like now people, you know, since the 60s or something, people call that camp. But I think that reduces it down to something where it's all similar. But this is just like this excess that those movies had, this visual excess mm-hmm. and this excess in the sexuality and in the kind of pantomime. Because she was almost like kabuki, her acting. It was so strange. And it was so theatrical. But it sort of was weirdly natural on camera as well. She was so commanding. Yeah, yeah. So, that, that also seems to be something that applies less and less today. It's, um, I think it's... Um somehow that that uh everybody's everybody's much more naturalistic now and we've definitely lost something yeah we lost a little bit of that kind of staginess which i mean you can say a lot with with a lot of those um it's just you know there's just there's just a lot you can say with um with excess i think with or with symbolism you know with um with uh, you know, with, with and with gowns. I mean, with with so so it's the idea that the story is that somebody is 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 the is the most fabulous, most opulent person, and then you show mm-hmm. that visually. You know, it's kind of the tools of the filmmaker to sort of get get the audience feeling really in the moment and really in there. And I was mentioning that too. I thought of that too. We were mentioning Babyface because she's got maids. Um, yeah, and so just uh, you know, just they're all they're all she's singing with her black maids, and she's she's you know they're, they're kind of supporting one another as women, and there's camaraderie between them, and she's singing the blues, and it's kind of like they've got they're singing the blues together, and there's this kind of female solidarity, yes. yeah, very on color yep. lines, which is interesting, which you also have to face. Yeah. yeah, it makes you wonder about that era. I remember discovering pre-code films many years ago and just being shocked that uh, how many of my perceptions of, you know, my great-grandparents came from movies that were completely whitewashing the way people lived. And then the first time you see a movie from the 30s where people are sleeping in the same bed and doing cocaine and getting abortions and having affairs and, you know, it just, it sort of, it, it, it somehow, you know, it makes me feel much more connected to those people than in uh, movies that come it a few years later. just makes you wonder what would have happened. Makes you wonder what would have happened if the if the code had not come in. And yeah. if movies had been allowed to develop the way that they did. We yeah. would have been yeah. in the 1960s by 1942. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's probably yeah, true. It's, true. it's probably true. But you know what? You know, well, some of the things, some of the changes were interesting, though. Um, some of the things that happened yeah. because of having to cut out the the really overt sexuality were interesting as well. Yeah, that's the point I was about to make was um, think about all the amazing things that came out of having to work around those constraints. Well, I think one thing they, they kept trying to do in the starting in the 30s with female characters was they were trying to bridge this different size of women so that they would kind of get rid of the Madonna horror problem. And I think that they, they, they weren't doing that later. Mm-hmm. By the 50s, they'd stop bothering <laughs> but there was this way in which um, the prostitute with the heart of gold was was an important character because if you were trying to teach men how to humanize a woman 
who they may have seen as a bad woman or a fallen woman. And they were always showing that it was always mm. due to circumstances and not to the woman just being a bad person or an evil person or, 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 or That's interesting. Yeah. Doctorate, she right. just wasn't born evil. You're trying to show men, women are people and sometimes they fall into bad circumstances and they have to make bad choices. Because even Babyface, which is all about a bad woman, she redeems herself in the end. And so it's always these, yeah. these kind of women who are sexual, especially after the code, they tried to make those sexual women appear um, very whole and human and dimensional, which is something, again, I think they stopped doing it sometime in the 40s or 50s, and it really hasn't um, come back, that idea of like trying to integrate the sexual woman with the spiritual woman. So mm. they, they kind of did that a little bit with Marilyn Monroe. Um, but you know who they really did that with? Um, you, you know, like one of my really favorite actresses because of this is um, Ingrid Bergman. And um, she had a naturally oh, spiritual okay. quality that Rossellini kind of picked up on. And he made these kind of really interesting films with her in Italy. And at the time, you know, those films like Stromboli or Europa 51 or Fear, Voyage to Italy, they, those weren't very highly regarded films. In fact, I think they were considered to be embarrassing and flops and failures. And a lot of people still think they're bad films, but actually they're absolutely incredible. They're just, they're just breathtaking, you know? And it's like he was using her kind of female suffering and her female saintliness and spirituality. And she was also very, very sexy and sexual. And it was all in her as a person, as a woman. Like she had all these qualities naturally. And also she was a really great actress who was able to harness all these things together into a very coherent performance. And so he wrote these movies for her that are just absolutely breathtaking to see them today. And I think that they're very, they seem very timely and current right now. You know, like especially Europa 51 is a movie where, you know, she loses her young son and she basically turns into a saint um, because she's suffering so badly. So she, and she feels guilty for it because she wasn't there to save him. She was just being kind of a, a socialite and, and everything. And she, she missed his signs of despair. I, I believe he killed himself and she, he couldn't get her attention. And, and so she, she just now wants to spend the rest of her time helping other people. And because um, she's a society woman and she goes into poor neighborhoods and ghettos and she's trying to save people who are sick and she's trying to help them, and she completely uh, gets away from her role in society as a rich woman. Um, they try to, I think they ended up putting her in an institution. Like they don't understand it. They don't understand that her grief and her humanity has like crushed her, but it's made her into some sort of a state. So it's just kind of a Joan of Arc story. So I, I really consider this to be Ingrid Bergman's real Joan of Arc movie, even though she did a, a Hollywood Joan of Arc movie, which right kind of an inferior movie. This was a real Joan of Arc movie where you can really see uh, those qualities in her, which are just absolutely, absolutely stunning. And also, of course, her, her career suffered from the so-called scandals uh, involving her and Rossellini. Yeah, so this thing is that she was, um, you know, she very much fell in love with Rossellini, but, you know, the sad thing was that her husband who was she married when she was very young and he was he was also Swedish and he came to Hollywood with her was was not a very nice person and he was very controlling of her 
and and I think really quite abusive in a way. So here's an example, like, um, and this is why she fled to Rossellini, which actually was out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, you know, he beat her and everything was very cruel to her. But um, her Swedish husband, it was like uh, she was making, earning more money than a, than anyone, I think, in, any woman in the entire United States, I think, at the, at the time. And he... Uh, he he managed her money, so he didn't let her touch her money. Oh, good idea. So he wouldn't let you wouldn't let her buy a dress for the Oscars, and so she had to wear last year's dress and humiliate herself. Serious? Oh. This type of that, this type of person. I I didn't know any of this. So. And he ruined. Yeah, he ruined a lot of her contracts. He turned down contracts for her, so he so she had to flee him. Actually, she really had to get away from him. Um, and then Rosalini turned out to be quite terrible as well. Um, but, um, you know, he was, and Rosalini was able to capture something about her, which was quite incredible in his, in his cinema. But I think, you know, she was labeled as a whore uh, after that, and she could never recover from it. Um, she was such a free spirit. Um, you know, another actress that I really love is Jennifer Jones. And she's not as well-known an actress as someone like Biddy Davis or Joan Crawford from that era. But I think she's, like, quite incredible. And I guess the movie I'll mention of hers is Duel in the Sun. Have you guys seen that? It's pretty delirious. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone's incredible in that movie. I think she's pretty much matched by Gregory Peck in that movie. And they're both really over the top. Yeah. It's very, very sexy in a way. It's very, it, they're, they're, full, they're so full of lust. Um, well, they did call it lust in the dust, you know. That is correct, yes. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm mixed race, and I, I never saw mixed mm -hmm. race characters on the screen. So, because these, these old movies, my favorite movies, to have sort of like a half breed character was really exciting for me. I saw it when I was younger. You know, this idea that she's, you know, she's she's this kind of firecracker and she's so, she's like this gypsy and she's sort of, and again, it's like she's got bad blood, but she's also, she's also mm -hmm. got innocent in a way, you know, she's got this kind of sweetness and purity. And what I loved about these old movies, the way they would treat women is they would, they would really observe women and they would look at the kinds of qualities that women had and they would make stories out of that, you know. So like this, like this mix of um, this mix of innocence and sexiness, which a lot of young women have, you know, especially women between let's say like fifteen and twenty or something, you know, really young women who haven't quite they feel all this power in their sexiness, but they don't know how to harness it. They know it's power, and they're very excited by their power over men, but they don't really know what it means, and so they can very much get a crush on an older man. And, and so she gets this crush on the um, Joseph Cotton character because he's supposed to be like this very, um, what she aspires to, a civilized, upright, proper man. But then she's got this kind of, she's got the hots for Gregory Peck, who's like the, the sort of sexy bad man. And so much fun. You know, the, the idea is that this kind of dilemma that a young girl has. So yeah, so all of these women's pictures and, and another another one of my favorite uh, actresses is Marlene Dietrich. And again, more and more so. As I get older, I become more and more obsessed with her. Um, she, you know, she was like this perfect actress. 
And again, she's she's the epitome of what people refer to right. as camp right now. I mean, even more, maybe even more than Mae West, you know. But um, but there's a sense in which um, again, this like artistic effort, this it's a kind of a high art effort by everybody involved in the movies. You know, she worked very closely with the costume designer Travis Banton. Um, to design all her dresses and she worked, she collaborated with him, you know, on the kinds of feathers to use. And then she would, she would actually be sitting there stitching some of them herself. She had this very, very specific idea of how she wanted to look. So her image was incredibly important. And I think. Well, von Sternberg practically deified her. That's right. And that's, and that's what I love. I love this. I love this whole time when women were deified on the screen. And I think no one was ever really, maybe no one was ever really quite deified like Marlena Dietrich. And the way, yeah, the way von Sternberg deified her. And so, you know, and, you know, the movies just got so over the top, you know, by the time they got to the Scarlet Empress. But the Scarlet Empress is, is a pinnacle of cinema, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's just a remarkable movie. It, it certainly is way over the top in every way, but the art direction is astounding. And as a, and it's got exactly. it's full of nudity, which yeah. is really fairly remarkable these days. Um, and it's you know it's it's a Catherine the Great story, so it's you know we're we're lucky that she's not you know having sex with horses. I've, I've never seen it. I confess. Um, <laughs> oh my God! It's a it's a major uh, omission, and you're uh, you've got to see it, and you and you got to get the Criterion yeah. version because yeah, it really I- looks terrific. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of my favorites of hers also is the blonde Venus. That's another von Sternberg. And it's just as it's again, it's this, it's this kind of story. And she just goes through so many transformations. You know, she she um, you know, she's she's like this very simple, humble mother housewife, and then she becomes a, a great nightclub performer and she's in drag. You just hear like these white tails, and then she's um she's in that gorilla suit, you know, she goes. <laughs> She does that number, hot voodoo in the gorilla suit, and then she's, you know. And they call it camp. Um, but in these movies, it's all about, it's it's all about this, like, mythos of women, of, like, feminine, all these all these different permutations of the feminine. And there's all this, like, transformation of disguise going on um, where, you know, because of all these, like, showbiz stories where people, you know, some of these women, part of the stories, they go on the stage, right? They go and they... They become an entertainment. They're, they're like, or in noir films. So some of my other favorite films are noir films, and almost inevitably, the lead actress is 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 a torso. Right, he's a singer. Yes, always, always. <laughs> Stay away from those women. That's the lesson I learned. <laughs> seducing the male lead, but also the entire male audience in the in the theater. So, yeah. And one of, my, one of my favorite noirs is Nora Prentice. I don't yeah. know if you've seen that. No, I have not. Yeah, no, no, um, that's that's really good. You've seen that's, that's what it's, it's, it's really really good. It's like this. It is a, it's a it's a noir, noir because uh, this woman Anne Sheridan actually is not a bad woman. She ends up completely destroying the life of Kent Smith, who plays this like uh, 
very uh, down-to-earth kind of doctor with family. I mean, he, he basically enjoy, destroys himself, you know, but uh, it's just absolutely, it, it's, it's so over the top, like his destruction, meeting a beautiful woman when he's got this family. And it's it just, he, he literally by the end is a monster. He doesn't even have a face anymore. It's unbelievable. This whole face has been burned off. She off. never really crazy. had the career that she deserved, I thought. And and I think Nora Prentice was was the effort to try to make her into a new Joan Crawford or Betty Davis. And it and it for whatever reason it just didn't take. God, she was incredible. She was called the Oomph Girl. And she was also incredible. She did another really great Nora Woman on the Run. Yeah, that one, yes, yes. With uh, with Dan Durier. <laughs> Dan Durier, one of the great more figures. So, oops, um, so in the Love Witch, I tried to do some of mm -hmm. these things, like from these pre-coded war films, and just in the sense, is take an actress and make her into some sort of an icon, who is so mesmerizing, but you know she can be evil and she can be sexual and she be she can be bad, but you end up kind of you know being entranced with her, in love with her, yeah. obsessed with her, and she becomes the center of everything, and then you you kind of um, you mix her sexuality with this kind of um, spirituality, which is all the close-ups on her face and her longing and her desire for love and in the Renaissance fair, her sweetness and purity. So you mix all that up and you try to show the audience that this, these are like different sides of the same woman. It's not that, it's, it's a little more complicated than somebody just being evil, although she is a psychopath <laughs> in the yeah. Uh, it's like it's but but you're with her in the in the in the tradition of many great yeah, screen psychopaths. Kind of, that's kind of how it's like an earlier movie more than it's like a '60s movie because by the '60s yeah. it kind of had stopped doing that. The star system was over. They weren't elevating women to that position. They weren't create. They weren't. It wasn't the star making machine about women anymore. You know. So uh, well, and if the, yeah, but they were also playing different kinds of parts well so also the, a... the women had gotten older and it was more difficult for them to get the kind of parts that they had when they were younger so you ended up with the uh the, the horror cycle where you know people like john crawford and betty davis were now making horror films right. which is certainly right. something that would have been the last thing on their mind when they were right. very popular but they weren't creating those kind of star vehicles for the younger actresses so the younger actresses so it was mainly now yeah yeah Pictures. So I think of like the classic era. It's 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 mainly indoors and it's women in gowns and interiors. And then starting from the sixties, it's outdoors and it's men. It's men and uh and like and the plains and exteriors. It's like it's like so it's so it's all about men outside instead of women inside. And I think that it kind of goes along with this idea of sexual freedom but also freedom from the social the kind of social um the kind of the, the, the kind of social mores that were created let's say for the family and the, and the, the that the family is associated in people's minds with with women like women and children or the families and the social the right. rules you know you have to come home from say there's like dinner on the table it's like you have to be nice you can't say certain words you know it's kind of like and then men are like, no more. <laughs> They're like, we're gonna like have all the sex we want. We're gonna, we don't have right. to come at a certain time. We're gonna stay outside. We're gonna drink with the buddies. 
But, you know, and that was actually really interesting, that, that wave of, of cinemas created some great cinema. But the problem is that we're still in it. Yeah, like the thing that just randomly popped into my mind were like, I was thinking, wait until dark and Rosemary's Baby, which are both great female characters, but they're both, you know, yeah, women who are trapped and victimized inside a home, essentially. Yeah, but you must have really liked the Douglas Sirk movies from the 50s, which completely subverted the entire uh, idea of the happy family. Oh, yeah, I love Douglas Sirk. I do. And um, yeah. incredible films from Douglas Sirk. I think especially Imitation of Life for me, I think is my favorite. Um, but, you know, um, yeah, and, you know, that was a very complex black and white movie. Uh -huh. um, but, yeah, so, his, you know, his films, even the black and white ones, even some of the ones that a lot of people haven't seen were very, very complicated in terms of dealing with family. Um, but I just feel like it, it sort of, I just sort of, I think like, I think what happened once you could show explicit sex on the screen is that producers realized they could make actually so much more money um, just doing that, um, sex and nudity. Um, and they don't actually need the stars anymore. You know, you don't, you don't actually need to create a great drama, a great script, stars, a star system, because you can make more money with less, you know, just make like a, a hardcore film and you could just make a lot more money. You spend less, it costs less, costs less produce. Um, you don't have to get stars, deal with stars, agencies, and then you just, uh, raking the money. So I think in a way it was a kind of a capitalistic issue and it still is the sense of hmm. how can we make maximum money with minimum, um, minimum money, <laughs> right. way, minimum effort or minimum. But I feel, I feel like today we've sort of gotten into a much more kind of, it's become much more puritanical on that front. Um, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't well, remember the started, last Hollywood. That started in the eighties, you know. With that's yeah, in the 80s. yeah, that's in the eighties. Yeah. yeah, but um, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, things got puritanical, and that was weird. But um, but we haven't brought back the women's picture. No, that's so, the weird thing. I, I love. I think it's a good good time to do it because I think finally producers are starting to realize that women. Uh -huh actually do do go see a lot of movies in mass you know and they love to see um certain uh women's kinds of stories i mean so far i think that's been a little bit conservative like how those women's stories are told and some of the mm -hmm. you know they're, they're doing like really really old books you know that's a little bit safe you know to do like a very very old book that's done been done many many times you know, then rather than doing something that has to do more with, um, I don't know, something a little bit more. Um, Are you talking about the new Little Woman remake? Well, not only that, um, but just all the, the movies that are done, um, the bigger, it seems like the bigger budget movies that are women's movies are all done from, from old books. So it's either that or, um, you know, the, the stuff they're doing for Jane Austen. Or, or other, um, you know, there's the new Emma, which I hadn't seen, but the, you know, they did My Cousin Rachel and they're doing um, just all these, all this stuff, yeah. um, old. The the, uh, the thing that pops to mind would be the, the the aberration would be like the Sex of the City movies, which were huge. Right. 
huge hits and everybody went, gosh, who, who, who saw that coming? And then they never really. Well, didn't that morph into the Mamma Mia? Movie? You'd think that would have spawned a whole kind of. The same audience? Not really. <laughs> oh, maybe the same audience, but I think very, very different kind of films. But you'd, you'd think somebody would have noticed and started making, you know, more adult themed films for yeah, yeah, contemporary adult, yeah, women. I don't themes. know. Um, um, but I think even, you know, for me, like Sex in the City is very much like, you know, gearing, you know, it's like gearing something towards a female demographic very specifically. Not not towards yeah. sort of a yeah, general yeah, yeah. audience of like like trying to create like great cinema. Right. It's about kind of like it comes from TV. It's geared towards women, and it's kind of like um, I would love to take women's pictures out of TV and out of being geared towards a, just a specific female demographic and have it be have it just be considered cinema, and yet you can have female characters, characters. Um, yeah. Exactly. Like like Mildred Pierce. I... Well, they did do a very good Mildred Pierce remake for uh, for television. Much longer version. Of that was for, television. for yeah, HBO. That was for, television. for HBO. Yeah. So I think of television, there's more opportunity. Yeah. There's more. There's more money to do that in television, and not so much in movies. Well, also, I, I think it's worse. I think that the majority of theatrical films are aimed at uh, at teenage boys. Uh, and the television yeah. is the domain of uh, women who are not getting out of the house a lot. Yeah, that's going to be true. <laughs> It'll soon be all of us. <laughs> um, I want to talk about. I want to talk about one more movie. So, have yeah. you seen the Reckless Moment? Oh yeah, that with uh, Eleanor Parker. I have not seen it in a thousand years, but yeah. No, Joan Bennett. Oh right, what's the one I'm thinking of? That's, that's Joan Bennett and James Mason. Oh, right. Isn't that Max Ophels? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Max Ophels, right. Yeah. So I was thinking of something with John Saxon and yep. Eleanor Parker, but I guess it was a different, somewhat similar time. <laughs> so what's so incredible about this movie is that it's all, you know, it, it's all about this like ordinary housewife who has this terrible thing happened to her, you know, like her daughter accidentally kills, um, there's an accident with this man who's trying to see her teenage daughter accidentally like falls down in their barn or something and gets killed. And she just like has, has to hide the body and all this stuff. And she has to then deal with these mm -hmm. kind of underworld criminals who are trying to blackmail her because the daughter wrote the guy some letters. And it becomes like very, very complicated but you see, she's just like made of steel and she's incredible because she's just, she's, she's very, in some ways, very unruffled, like weirdly unruffled by the whole thing, but she's also just like takes care of it. Mm -hmm. It's like, and there's this incredible moment when this character, James Mason is like this low life criminal, but he kind of falls in love with her. So he tries to help her with everything, ends up getting, you know, destroying himself in the process because he's involved with much worse criminals that he's protecting her from. And he says at one point, he's like an Irishman who's had a very tough life. And he says to her, I wish I had a mother like you. And she says, everyone has a mother like me. And um, I just thought, how incredible. I mean, it's probably not true, but how incredible is it to have a movie about a mother where the mother is just like this, this, this like, you know, paragon of like strength and just, 
you know, and she's beautiful and she's, she just can solve any problem. I think, well, that's kind of what moms are like. That's kind of what's in the dialogue. Yeah. That's an amazing line. I love it. You know, this idea that people realize, yeah, mothers are capable of incredible. So I think, you know, where they do the superhero movies now and they try to maybe like make a female superhero, but what she does is kind of like, you know, karate or she's, can shoot or, or she can fly or she can do different things like the men can do. I think, well, this is the real, this is more interesting to me as a woman being strong in the way that women are strong, like as a mother, you know, mm-hmm. or like as, as like, you know, in the screwball comedies, you know, these women who could solve any social problem, any problem between two people or solve any romantic problem or, you know what I'm saying? Like the kind of skills that women have, you know, I'm not trying right. to be essentialist. I know that women have a lot of the same skills men have and vice versa. I'm not trying to say it's just, just women who have these skills. But women tend to have very interesting uh, kind of, you know, people skills mm-hmm. to make them extremely clever in solving all kinds of really difficult problems. And, they used to, and I guess one reason I, I started to become so interested in that is because of all these old movies where you see like, every permutation of every type of fabulous woman, you know, portrayed. And I recently started reading, you know, novels from the 40s that are about these kinds of women. I'm really getting into that. You know, like I just recently read the novel that The Reckless Moment came from. It's incredible novels written by a woman. So um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's really, it just is fascinating to me for years the way that, um, you know, obviously, as a culture, we've we've uh, you know things things have been. I like to think at least getting slowly better for women in terms of um, uh, economics and material existence and equality and so forth. And that as we theoretically move forward into this age of enlighten, enlightenment, you you go back to an era where none of that existed, and films portrayal of women was so much more thoughtful and human. It's um, it's a very bizarre thing. Well, I think that as women gain more power in, in the actual world, and men become more actually threatened by women, then like, oh, the, oh, good so, point. <laughs> yeah, um, men become threatened. They weren't threatened by fictional portrayals of women because women didn't really have that much power really in the workforce anymore. Right, so, all they had was fictional portrayals. Was, right. So then the the women in these like forties, thirties, forties films. Were actually, in some ways, they were they they had much more freedom of movement than most of their uh-huh. peers in real life, you know. So yeah. um, a lot of them were working, or they 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 they, they were in professions, or they're incredibly um, self-directed, and they had incredible equal relationships with men. And I think that um, that was kind of fantasy in some ways. Like it was for some women, it was reality. Like I was, uh, I was reading about Ruth Chatterton, who was quite incredible. She was an actress in the 30s, and she like right. was a She like flew around the world, and she 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 got bored with acting. She became a novelist. She published some best-selling books, and you know some of these women were were quite um, quite mobile. But a lot of you know, it was kind of like a uh, there was like an aspirational kind of feeling to the movies they were making, like sort of encouraging, inspiring women to be their best, which. You know, I don't mm-hmm. see so much anymore. <laughs> you know, so um, you know, the idea is like 
if you, if you wanted to, if, if you had an industry that was interested in creating admirable female characters, um, that would be interesting. Well, that would have to be an industry that's run more by women, I would think, than men. And then, and it, uh, you would that's, hope, that's, but that's slowly happening, but very, very slowly. Yeah, I would love to open a studio and just make women's pictures. I think that would be incredible. Well, you know, Ida Lupino tried to do that. She, she, uh, yes. when she got yeah. tired of being an actress at Warner Brothers and wanted to become a, a filmmaker with her husband, um, she formed a company where they, uh, it was an independent company, and uh, she directed a number of the pictures. They're, first, they produced, and then she went into directing them. And, um, and they're still quite unique pictures from the early 50s, early to mid 50s. I agree. They're very unique. They're very, very interesting films. And I think that it's you know it's it's they're subtle you know the differences between them and um and other other like low budget films at the time mm -hmm. but you can see there's some very like things strange like there's like real empathy for these female characters that are having all these problems and um it's and it's it's a kind of a and there's a kind of a tragic quality tragic element to to some of these characters like a woman who gets pregnant and then has to give away her baby and all these kinds of stories like that that are really quite harrowing so that you realize that you know you do have all these great strong women in those films but you don't quite have anything like that where where the woman is you know she's being sexualized by all the men around her but she actually just wants her baby and she just wants to be left alone you know it's kind of like mm -hmm. It's like the focus is a little bit different, you know, or, or or maybe it's a little bit more like some of the European films actually, which were which which took very seriously the idea that people had very difficult life circumstances, you know, poverty. Right. The movie like High School Thieves, you know, so she her movies are a little bit like more like that because she's thinking about this kind of, or like you know Rossellini's movies, you know, this, this idea that people have terrible life circumstances that they're trying to get through. And um, it's not so much about glamour, although I love glamour, you know, my glamour is my favorite thing. It's just very interesting to see these, this other side of things, this other side of women's stories, which is about the kind of tragedy of, of, of um, having certain circumstances come from being a woman, which, which make life really, really hard sometimes. People. I don't know. I'm just, it, it's endlessly fascinating. I remember uh, years ago, before I was in the Writers Guild, I was working with a producer who was over at Paramount um, and she wanted to do, uh, they were looking to do a female centered psychological thriller. And uh, we ended up talking about remakes and oh, yeah, um, I had, I had somehow at the time we were doing that, I stumbled across sudden fear, the John Crawford film, which Great I, movie to mention. I was, yeah. And just, yeah, it's so good. She plays a very successful Broadway playwright. Yeah. I guess she's sort of, I, the only thing I come up with is she'd be like Neil Simon if Neil Simon wrote dramas instead of comedies and, and were Joan Crawford. Aside from that, it's a perfect comparison. Yeah, it's a perfect comparison. And then she falls in love with a young ingenue. Uh, isn't it his first role? Um, a younger actor, Jack Palance. When it's a man, it's a juvenile. But, oh, juvenile. Um... Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, but she falls in love with Jack Palance, who's an actor. And then... Um, uh, she finds out that uh, he's cheating on her with a with another act with an actress, and that they plan on murdering her, and sort of goes from there. And it's amazing. It, it's so good. 
Yeah, she finds out that he and Gloria Graham are planning to kill her. Yeah. She hears it on the recording that was accidentally made in her office. Yes. And what's amazing is the way she switches when she yeah. when she starts to go into having her plan of getting revenge and stopping the murder. And then and then she kicks into full gear as a dramatist yes. who's able to plan every detail. So I love this thing where her her skills as a yeah. playwright come in handy when she's trying to she's planning on on, on uh, getting them both killed like getting like killing him and then and framing her for it framing him for it and um right. it sounds really incredible another really great late um joan crawford film is torch song have you seen that no no i'm not uh i saw i've seen it a long time ago i really don't remember it very well it was incredible because it's about she plays this actress is a, is a complete prima donna and a total control freak and she's aging and um she falls in love with this blind piano player played by michael wilding and um and the only reason he's able to also fall in love with her is he can't see her oh <laughs> because and fresh and beautiful on like on broadway and she's gotten so hardened over time and she's so controlling. She's had no love. She's had to claw her way to the top. Mm. And now she's this middle-aged woman. And her, her her toughness and hardness can be read all over her face. And everyone's terrified of her. But he remembers her the way she was. And so they, they fall in love. And it's absolutely incredible. Right. Because it's almost like this, this, you know, so she's, we've seen Joan Crawford since she was very, very young. You know, the audiences who... And then she's, you know, she's, she's aging. And then it's kind of this thing about this, this very heartbreaking thing about aging in a way, this idea that the only man who can really fall in love with her is a man who's blind. And it's incredible because they, they go to this restaurant for lunch and they're, they're kind of, right. they're very venomous towards each other. They have this animosity right away because he's not playing the piano the way she wants and they're, they're bickering. And I just love, I remember about that scene is, is you know, I love what people used to order for, in restaurants at that time, you know, and she orders a lobster thermidor and a coffee. That's just that's a horrible combination. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, but it, it um, uh, the thing the thing with sudden fear that that I really love is that it, it, sort of ruining it a little bit. I guess there's there's a twist at the end where she catches sight of herself holding a gun going through her plot and there's just this moment and it's all in the acting where you see her realize like, what the fuck am I doing? I don't kill people. This is not me. That is such a, Oh, that's a incredible moment. It's, it's fantastic. And the crazy thing with my experience with it is I, I brought this into the producer at Paramount. I was like, Hey, you know, this would be a great thing to remake, especially, you know, female lead and, da, 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 da. and she's really strong. It, it was, you know, at the time, all the kind of female centric thrillers were about women who, you know, Goldie Hawn finds out she's married to a, you know, a mass murderer or something. And then she runs away from him and um, everybody loved it. And then it, it sort of turned out that because it was paramount, it would have to be a WGA writer. And so I had to sort of go, go my way, which, you know, all I had done was brought them this old film. But I remember bumping into the producer about a year later and asked about the project and it was still chugging along. They had made one change. Um, it was now going to be uh, Clint Eastwood in the Joan Crawford part. <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden it's Clint Eastwood marrying a beautiful young actress who plots to murder him. And it's just a completely different thing. <laughs> oh God, that's, that's just awful. Yeah. 
you know, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm no, so never happy it never happened. <laughs> they never made it. Thank God. <laughs> I'm going to meetings and I'm pitching my uh, screenplay with a female protagonist. And uh, it's very difficult. You know, it's very difficult because I think there's, there's people don't want to say it, but there's an incredible distance to um, having a female protagonist in a movie driving the action, you know? And again, unless it's... Uh, yeah, well, especially in certain types, yeah. I mean, that's why, again, you know, if I were to try to adapt, maybe like a Jane Austen novel or something, you know, I'd probably be able to get that made. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult to get an original screenplay made. Um, add a cape and make her a superhero. And you've got a cape. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had some interest, but I think that because no one's doing it, really. Right. It's it's like hard to sell something that no one, no one else is doing. Right. Yeah, it's very strange, too, because there's all this kind of pressure and, and talk and focus on representation, but it seems to be very limited. It's, it's um, uh, yeah, as Joe says, it's like, ooh, Captain Marvel's a woman. Now we've, we've, done, we've done right by women this year. <laughs> so true. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah uh, so, I mean, I guess that's a step, but I think, you know, again, um, going so deeply into women's pictures the last few years, because I've really yeah. made a study of them. I've started to really study them because I've, have this new idea that I want to make a whole bunch of women's pictures myself. You know, just the richness and the complexity and the variety is so incredible. There's somebody out there who should be making a ton of money by finding you. And of course there are other filmmakers out there trying to do the same thing. It really is a giant hole in the market. Just from a surely commercial. I'll tell you, I don't know if there are a bunch of people trying to do the same thing. And I'll tell you why, because I read a lot of scripts. And I read scripts by men and women, and I don't read mm-hmm. anything like I'm trying to do, not even close, not even by a mile. Really? Okay. And I think it's because I think my my stuff is classical in a way. I think it's important mm-hmm. to me that it be classical because I'm trying to resurrect some of these ideas. So what I what I end up finding is that some of my ideas appear very old fashioned to people, like ideas about glamour, you know, or ideas about um, right ideas about traditional um, relationships between men and women, which many, many, many people still have. You know? mm. um, many people are married sure. or, or have um, love relations, romantic relationships with some of the opposite gender, you know, that still happens. It's just not. I, I, I myself have <laughs> married a woman and it's, um, we're trying that out for a while. It's been going great for about five years. Keeping that tradition alive. Yeah, so you still have um, all these gender dynamics and things. And yeah. So yeah. I, I think like in a way, like the very concept of even being a woman is old fashioned in cinema. And it's because we haven't had women's pictures for 60 years. Trying to make a movie with a hmm. female protagonist that isn't from like a 19th century novel feels to people um, dated. You know, it's almost like women are dating. Right. Well, we have so many more genders now. Well, that's, well, that's, that's true, but um, we, you know, but we still, you know, we can still, um, yeah, I guess because everything, everyone wants everything to be new and edgy, and I always want everything to seem, <laughs> I want to go, I want to start with tradition. 
and then and then right. and then kind of a riff off that you know so if i want to make something different and right. new i want to i want to start from tradition and then and then tweak it from there you know well, that's true. And that goes very way back to the beginning of this conversation. As you say, if you um, describe the love, which it's timeless, yeah, so and, kind of, uh, timeless is all kinds of wonderful things. Edgy and new is not one of them. <laughs> you can't be timeless and edgy and new. Well, right? I mean, I think it's kind of edgy and new just because in a sense, well, the, because no one's doing it. Nobody's doing it at all. Well, the idea right. is that yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're doing something and nobody else is doing it, but uh, you know, for 60 years, then you're yeah. new again, you know? So, um, but I'm also right. not quite doing it the way it was done. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doing it like a little differently. Um, and so those yes. things that, I mean, they're subtle, but you know, they're maybe not that subtle. Um, but there's a subtle difference, you know? For, oh no, for sure. Yeah. For sure. It's, um, I mean, that, that is the thing again, to get, to get back to, to the love, Witch. it's, it's, uh, it is, it's, it's so hard to describe, and I really do apologize for the, the the mangling I did of describing it. But it is um, it is a film I have not seen before, and yet it is it is a timeless right. movie that I have seen before. Yeah, I know. It's very, I know. Um, I'm trying to make something out of uncanny in that way. Yeah. And I guess what yeah. it is is like it is like uh, an old movie, but it's filtered through my experience of being so reliving now. Right. So, like, you can't actually capture the past. And just have it be the past, unless you're just, unless it is. I mean, I'm not trying to do a pastiche, but the idea is, the whole thing is to filter it through now. So the the idea is like all right. experience is present experience. So it's impossible to make something now without having to be filtered somehow through now, through some kind of something that's in the right. air now. And so I think if you make something that feels like it's from another time. The weird thing about it will be the way that it also doesn't feel like it's from another time. The way it's dealing with ideas that are mm -hmm. now or ways of thinking that are kind of now and the way those things will seep in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The way the cell phone kind of seeps in and it surprises people. The same thing with yeah. ideas that would never have occurred to anyone in the sixties to have, you know, that are things that are in the script, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, Anna, thank you um, so very much for joining us. Thank and you for being, being our, our first being our guinea pig. Ho hopefully, some of this recording. Yeah. Our post-pandemic guinea pig. But <laughs> uh, was so great meeting you guys and talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.